You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. If there's one thing he hates, it's a runny yolk. And toast, so dry, it shatters like a cracker before you can spread the butter. And rain. He hates the rain, too. Three days of it now, making a mess of the streets and keeping shoppers out of the stores. Pathetic numbers, absolutely pathetic, in all four units, and with Christmas season coming on nonetheless. Depressing people. Drooling like bilge down the plate glass windows at the Cactus Cafe, where he eats breakfast five days a week, and they still can't figure out what over-fucking-easy means. His dried-out toast is cold. The coffee tastes like aluminum foil, and it's cold, too, or lukewarm at best. And the newspaper has one stingy little article about what went down at the museum last night, tucked away in the community events roundup for Tuesday, November 20, 2001, the date in bolder type than the headline, as if to indicate that everything included beneath it would be just as mind-numbing and inconsequential as it had been the day before and the day before that. There's a scant two paragraphs that don't begin to get at the issue, and worse, don't even mention him or FPA by name, let alone set out the counter-arguments he'd thrown right in the face of that condescending little bitch from the Park Service who was fooling nobody with her gray-eyed squint and her all-black outfit as if she were going to a funeral or a goth club or something, and all her tricked-up images of the cute little animals that just have to be saved in the face of this sudden onslaught by all those other ugly little animals made uglier by somebody's Photoshop manipulations. As if the birds wouldn't last another week when 150 years had gone by in complete harmony and natural balance with all the other birds and plants and the rats too, something Alma Boyd Takasui, Ph.D., didn't bother to mention. Suddenly, he's jerking his head around. And there's Marta. Fat Marta with her two-ton tits and big pregnant belly that isn't pregnant at all, only just fat, bending over some other guy's table, by the door, flirting with him, for Christ's sake. And before he can think, he shouts out her name, surprising himself by the violence of his voice. Everybody in the place, and there must be 30 of them, half he recognizes and half not, looks up in unison, as if they were all named Marta. And what does he think about that? He thinks, fuck you, collectively! He thinks he might have to find another goddamn diner where they know the difference between... And here she is, her face drawn down around a mouth shrunk to the size of a keyhole beneath the flabby cheeks, coming to him as swiftly as her two small feet can carry her, trying to act as if she cares. Is everything okay, she asks, before she's halfway to him so everybody can hear her doing her job, even Ricardo, the cook, who's giving him a hooded look from behind the grill, a cigarette in one hand, spatula in the other. No, he says, still too loud. And they're all looking, still, all of them. Because they're a bunch of sad-ass, pathetic voyeurs and nothing better to do. And fuck them, really, fuck them. No, everything isn't okay, because I come in here every day, don't I? And you people still don't know what over-easy means? Shit, if I wanted sunny side up, if I wanted a runny yolk, that's what I would have ordered. She's already reaching for the plate, already apologizing. Sorry, sir, I'll have the cook and all the rest of the mollifying, meaningless little phrases she dispenses a hundred times a day because the cook's a moron, and to call her incompetent would be a compliment. But he can't help saying, snarling. And why is he snarling? Take it away and do it right or don't do it at all. And to the retreating twin hummocks of her butt. And the toast is like that shit they give babies. What do you call it? Zwieback. And I don't want Zwieback. I want toast. 
She's at the swinging door to the kitchen now, making a show of appending the plate in the trash while Ricardo shrinks into the Azteca nullity of his face and everybody else in the place pretends to take up their conversation where they left off. And he can't help adding, his voice lower now, the rage all steamed out of him, though the heat's still up high. Simple toast, is that too much to ask? T.C. Boyle is the author of many books worth your valuable reading time, from World's End to Drop City to The Inner Circle, Talk Talk, A Friend of the Earth, The Women, and Wild Child. His newest book is When the Killing's Done. Thank you for joining me, Tom. As usual, Rick, it is a pleasure to be back with one of the best-read hosts in America. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> I, I might say I might be a little bit cautious were I to uh, join you next door at the cafe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, of course, this is just a character by the name of Dave LaJoy. He has, uh, he has his problems, as everyone does, but he also has a very good point. This is a man who is an animal rights activist who believes that no animal should be sacrificed no matter what. He also has a little bit of an anger management problem, and the scene you've just heard is him just having breakfast. I mean, he just uh, things, things upset him, and he can't help himself. Well, one of the things I enjoy about this book um, is the way that you work in nonfiction. And I was just thinking about this. There's points where you work in nonfiction as parts of the characterization. It's one thing to work in nonfiction as parts of the narrative. But I thought it was just remarkably clever of you. How interesting it was to, to tweak that. Because I know you like to, to work with nonfiction. So talk about creating these two characters, um, Dave LaJoy and Alma Mae Takasui. Uh, these are people who you would not think, given their beliefs, would be in any kind of conflict. Mm. Yeah, uh, they're very similar. They both want to protect animals. Um, they, um, they're vegetarians, uh, you know, etc. They're liberals, of course. Um, she is the antagonist here. She is in charge of a park service... Uh, uh, program to eliminate the feral rats from Anacaba Island and then to eliminate the feral pigs from Santa Cruz. By eliminate, we mean kill, and thus we get the title of the book. Dave interrupts one of her public speeches when she's explaining this to the public and shouts her down, and they say, "You please be civil, and he says, I'll be civil when the killing's done. So that sets up the antagonism between them. As far as the first part of your question is concerned, I have to say, Rick, what I often say to you, Oh, shucks. I'm just doing what comes natural. Um, I will take information that I, that I gather about these islands. Um, this fight over the restoration is actually true. The shipwrecks that opened the book actually happened. I'm dramatizing the events. But, of course, within that context, I'm also trying to let people know what the Channel Islands are and what is going on with regard to island biogeography, for instance. And that takes a little bit of telling. And the trick is to balance that with moving your story. Well, you tell one hell of a ripping yarn. And in many <laughs> ways, actually, you tell three or four ripping yarns in this story. What do you have against boats? Boats, ships, <laughs> skiffs. <laughs> you don't like them. I, I, I'm guessing you must have had a bad experience on one sometime. <laughs> what have I got against boats? Well, there are a lot of shipwrecks in this. There, you know, and I'll get to that. Uh, when you're organizing material, um, and I do it instinctively and organically, day by day, I don't have an outline, you know, mm -hmm. there are certain organizing principles, like the 
epigraph, which we'll get to, uh, I guess. And um, the various species that I'm talking about, we have uh, Latin names for some chapters of these species. And we also have a series of wrecks, of boat wrecks, because the channel, San Barbara Channel, is, is known for its wrecks. It's, it's very violent. It's a collision of the northern current coming down from the Bay Area, going around Point Conception and colliding with the counter-circulating southern current. So it's very violent, and there's been many, many wrecks there. And that's the rational explanation. Now, what have I got against boats? Um, I have a really healthy respect for the sea, mm-hmm. which really means terror of. <laughs> um, yeah, I've been on many boats, and I've gone many places, uh, but I don't really feel that it's a good idea. I think the sea can really get to you. Um, uh, that said, of course, I am a boat owner. Oh, really? What yes. kind of boat do you have? I have two sea kayaks. Sea kayaks. Okay, mm-hmm. well, that would be... We have a lot of kayaking opportunities up here. I know you do, and I intend to get up here once I retire at the age of 95. I'll have plenty of time to go kayaking up here. Anyway, when I first moved to Santa Barbara, one of the first things I did was go to a lecture at the Natural History Museum by Mm -hmm. Peter Howarth, one of our local uh, biologists. And it was a lecture on the Great White. Mm. You see, in a lake... (laughs) <laughs> nothing really there that can eat you. But in the ocean, it's unlikely, but still, you know. So I wanted to know about this. And I learned that the great white feeds by daytime on the surface within 300 yards of shore because what do they eat? Seals, you know. And so it makes me a little nervous because, as you well know, the silhouette of the bottom of a kayak, as seen from below, looks very much like the silhouette of a basking seal. So... What I was able to do with this information was I got a very long tape measure. And whenever I took my kayak out, I'd, I'd measure out 300 yards and just go beyond that. And here I am. Here I am. Still alive to tell the tale. Yep. Let's get to that epigraph. That's a great, it's a great start to the book. Actually, you know, read, read, the, read the epigraph. Yeah, okay, the epigraph often has an organizing feature. I will have an epigraph before I have the book exactly, and it gives me a thematic idea mm-hmm. of what this book will be about, and I think uh, the listeners will see quite clearly uh, how this sets up the opposition of the book. The quote is from Genesis 128, and God blessed them, and God said unto them, be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Now we take that with the title, and if you add, add, take the title as the question, as a question, mm. the answer to that question by the time one finishes this book is, it's not, yeah. ever. The answer is never, <laughs> yes, that's exactly right, because, you know, it's, it's a, like many of my books, I'm, I'm meditating on... As with many of my books, I'm meditating on things, and, and I'm meditating on our, our um, being as animals on this mysterious planet and what it means and how we regard the other animals and how we separate ourselves from them and, uh, and all of this. And so this just seems like a natural story for me to be telling after, for instance, examining this in A Friend of the Earth mm-hmm. or in many of the short stories of Wild Child from last year, for instance, or uh, in the Kinsey book in, in The Inner Circle as to his trying to separate our animal functions from our intellectual functions and so on. So it's just a natural progression for me to be talking about invasive species. And, of course, we are an invasive species as well. Well, this is a book that in which every line that you can draw between human and nature or natural and artificial is crossed from both directions. 
And in fact, it made me realize that you can just combine the words human and nature, humanature, and that's actually kind of what this is about, isn't it? Yes, because very specifically now to talk about what stimulated this story are actual events within the last decade on Atacapa and on Santa Cruz Island. Uh, for those who don't know the Channel Islands, um, Santa Cruz is the biggest of them. It's directly across from Santa Barbara, 22 miles across. You can see it lying on the horizon on a, on a good day. And if you get any of elevation, like up on San Marcos Pass, you look down on them and it's like, it's like a little pond, and there they are. It's four times bigger than Manhattan, and no one lives there, because it is now possessed by the Nature Conservancy in... Uh, who are retaining it to give to the Park Service at some point, and 10% of it is Park Service. Anacapa and all the other northern Channel Islands are all part of the, uh, the Channel Islands National Park. And so, the character whom we introduced you to at the outset, Dave LaJoy, the animal rights activist, um, goes out to Anacapa with a Confederate in order to prevent the bombing of the island with rat poison to remove the rats. How did the rats get there? Well, in 1853, the Winfield Scott, a paddle wheel steamer, was coming down from San Francisco with a bunch of 49ers, guys who'd been out in the gold fields with their gold dust, and they'd made their fortune. They were going to Panama, where they would cross, there was no canal yet, and then take an allied sister ship up to New York and the East Coast. Well, it was a foggy day, the captain was going by dead reckoning, and I guess he, uh, he reckoned wrong because the boat uh, went up on the rocks on Anacapa. No one died. They were rescued in a few days. The gold was recovered, but the ship went down, and all the ship's rats got onto Anacapa. This is in 1853. In 2001, the Park Service realized that these animals, there are rats everywhere, must be removed because they are killing off or at least decimating the ground-nesting birds, like uh, you know the Xanthus's murrelet and the uh, Cassin's auklet and these other birds that only live on these certain islands. And so they felt the rats had to be sacrificed for the good of these birds. Enter Dave LaJoy. Um, and this is based on a real incident that I read about in the newspaper. Uh, Dave and his confederate went out there with backpacks full of vitamin K and kibble to scatter all over the island because vitamin K is the antidote to brotofacum the rat poison, decon, uh, that, that is a blood thinner. And they were arrested. And so I tell this story from uh, my own viewpoint in the novel, having created characters uh, to put in opposition here. Now, one of the things I think that's uh, quite entertaining, this book is pretty funny. Uh, I think you have a great sense of humor. <laughs> and Dave and his, his uh, confederates are, are always kind of... Uh, bested by the nature they're trying to help. Yeah, I guess so. You know, uh, Rick, I, I'm always trying to tell a story in a different way. Um, but I think some irony and black humor do creep into this telling, even though, as you say, it's a ripping yarn and it's a, I think it's a, a suspenseful story and it's one that, you know, addresses an issue that I think should be um, uh, prominent uh, to be discussed by everybody. But yeah, um, there are several ironies. You know, the fact, as you mentioned earlier, that both Alma and Dave really could be on the same side and should be, but both are very hard-headed and intransigent, and each makes the decision. 
Dave, though he is a boor, though he's a bully, though he's angry, though he's a loudmouth and commits many, many sorts of sins in this way, um, he nonetheless has this essential position that it is uh, uh, wrong, morally wrong, to kill any creature, no matter what. Alma, using realpolitik, uh, a biologist, decides that, um, yeah, she feels the same way, but in this instance, uh, these creatures, these rats, must be sacrificed in order to restore Anacapa for the benefit of the species that evolved there in the absence of predators. Five pages into this book, we're seeing everything as uh, everything you describe is, looks like nature to us. We see it as ecologies. So there's a description early on when you get in where you're describing where Alma lives. And she lives near the coast, and, and but there's all the, the way you describe the traffic flowing. You think I'm just thinking, wow, this is just like the flowing river of, of that flows down to the sea. It's just the human version, and I think I thought it was really interesting that the way that you use the prose to alter the reader's perception. So there's kind of like we you put us firmly in Alma's perspective put us firmly in Dave's perspective, but then you give us your own kind of, our own perspective, which is we start to look at everything around us and think, wow, I mean, we're just in kind of a, an advanced tree here, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. I love this, Eric. Uh, go on, on on this vein for a couple of hours. I'd love to hear this. You want to go on the road with me and we'll, we'll take this act abroad? Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Uh, you know, again, I'm just an artist. I'm just trying to you know, uh, make art out of material that interests me. That's all I do in life. I'm not, a, I don't give lectures. I, you know, uh, I don't write reviews. I don't care about anything like that. I don't go to meetings. I just want to make art for this reason because it's very magical and I don't know what it will be. And yes, of course, we see Alma who is in charge of this wild nature. You know, mm -hmm. the Channel Islands remain wild even though 20 million people live on the coast across from them down to LA. Um, and yes, she has to accept what we all do. She's moved to a place near the ocean in Santa Barbara, but intervening, you know, uh, are all these invasive species in the backyard of her condo, you know, the eucalyptus trees and the calla lilies and so on, and then the fancy hotel, and then the beach, and then the water, and then the island, you know? And, and, and on the other side of the house, as you point out, is the freeway, the 101 freeway. So she can look out one side and get a glimpse of the ocean, uh, and, but see invasive trees. And the other side, she sees the perpetual stream of everybody, uh, this animal species to which she belongs, going about their business. Did and you know, by the way, dance? by the way, you know, uh, how natural is it for you and me to drive a car? I've been doing it since I was 15 years old, you know? It's a per perfectly natural thing to be in this shell, uh, you know, burning around someplace. Um, and yet it's so crazy, it's too, so compared insane. to our animal beings, you know, when we're meant to walk places and, uh, and not to be inside of some steel shell. Uh, it's, it's just crazy, but we accept it all. We, we integrate uh, all this technology that we're using at this moment into our lives and think nothing of it. Well, it is. So, you're right. It's so strange for me to think when I'm driving around that I'm just in this two tons of hurtling metal that could just decimate, you know, the entire population of a high school, though all, all the people that, that annoyed me in high school, in a heartbeat. <laughs> Absolutely, and you know, uh, there's, a, there's a scene in which Alma is rushing on her way to a meeting down in Ventura, a meeting 
with the other people who are organizing the pig hunt on Santa Cruz when all the pigs had to be killed. And um, she's in a little bit of a hurry. She zips out and she runs over a squirrel. And the squirrel is lying there in the street. She's heartbroken. She doesn't want to hurt anything. And she looks back at it. And it's pretty well crushed, but it's still moving. And what is she going to do? Can she put it out of its misery? What should she do? She feels horrible. And a kid comes along on his skateboard. And he just looks at it and steps on its head and smushes it into the pavement and goes on. <laughs> Euthanasia. <laughs> yeah, I think that's... Uh, the, the, aren't they protesting in China? Tell me. The, the, euthanasia, the euthanasia. Of what? Oh, the youth in Asia are protesting. Oh, that's a good I'm one. I'm sorry. Right? It's from my old Bill Nelson days. <laughs> this is a book that is, you know, you mentioned irony. This is a book that is a nutritional substance. This is rich in irony. This is, this is your enough irony to, to send you out for a triathlon. It's, it's being compared to the Tortilla Curtain from 95 because it's taking on an issue and it's giving you both sides, and it is built on multiple ironies. And the reader makes all these connections, as you were saying earlier, and I hope that they're enjoyable to make because they're provocative and they make you think about the essential issue is, which is, you know, who are we? Where did we come from? Why are we here? And what gives us the right to control all the other animals, whether we do it in a way that is to restore their habitat or to eliminate them or further uh, to farm pigs in some factory like, like a science fiction movie where they never see the light of day and they're not even pigs. You know, what is that all about? So I'm trying to meditate on all this in the context of this particular story, which is giving you the real facts of what happened in the last decade on these islands, as well as the history of how everybody got there and, 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 and some features of uh, island biogeography as well. The, the uh, nonfictionist book is really enjoyable. And, and I want to talk to you about this. This must have done, required quite a bit of research. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, again, I am making it up. I'm, I'm creating a world for you to enter, but it has to be an accurate world. Otherwise, readers will pull up short and begin to question it and step out of the magical space that is created between writer and reader. Well, when you do this, uh, one of the things, there's lots of, there's some aspects of this that we wonder, you know, how much... How much of this is real, this, especially towards the end? There's some things that happen. That, uh, <laughs> I can't give that away, but I will say that uh, uh, the facts of the killing off of the various species. And Did by the way, succeed? Did they really succeed with the rats and the pigs? Well, we'll get to that, Rick. We'll get to that. Um, yes, in short, yes. But um, the concatenation of events uh, is almost is so preposterous. It's like something that Samuel Beckett would have would have relished. Um, on my refrigerator to this day is a yellowing headline from our local newspaper that says, um, eagles arrive as rats are killed, you know? And so what is this all about? Well, I found out. I have found out. And in short, here's what happened. It's, when you have a closed ecosystem, and one could argue that the Earth itself with 7 billion people is a closed ecosystem hurtling toward its doom, uh, or at least the doom of the environment that allowed our species to thrive, um, you have to understand that to inject a creature or remove a creature or plant uh, can have catastrophic, or as they say in biology, cascading consequences. So, in short, during World War II, a chemical company dumped DDT into Santa Monica Bay. This worked its way up the food chain, and it killed off all the bald eagles on all our Channel Islands because their shells 
were not firm enough and they could not reproduce. In their absence, golden eagles flew in from the coast and established themselves on the islands. Balds are more territorial and tougher, apparently, and they had kept all these goldens at bay for all these eons. All right, no big deal. But what, what attracted the goldens are the feral pigs. Um, the pigs, they don't know exactly when the pigs got to Santa Cruz Island, but uh, they predict it was, uh, or they estimate it was 150 years ago or so. The sheep ranchers also had a little hog pen, and their hogs got loose, and here they are, these feral animals. All right. The first thing the Park Service and Nature Conservancy did on taking over this property from its private owner, Carrie Stanton, and uh, also the, the, the 10% of the Park Service from the Garini family, um, was to remove the sheep. Because as you know, sheep will chew everything right down to the dirt. And they were changing the ecology of the island by eating all of the native plants, which gave room for some of the invasives to spring up. And further, there were no more trees. The trees are only remnant trees, elderly trees from the past, because any acorn the pigs would eat, and any uh, sprouting sapling the, the, the sheep would chew down. So you're changing the ecology of the island. The trees are necessary in order to trap moisture coming over from the Pacific. So, shall I go on? Well, you know, <laughs> you know what, what the strike, what, what, as I was reading this book, I think you really have a perspective perception of ecology in our world as a giant Rube Goldberg machine. Exactly. And so that's a perfect lead-in for me to tell the rest of this particular story. Good. All right. So the sheep could be removed back to the shore. They could be trapped humanely and brought back to shore. But of course, you know, some of them are going to wind up as lamb chops, et cetera, et cetera, um, because this had been a shipping operation. They were selling uh, wool and they were selling lambs and so on. However, the pigs had been feral for 150 years. They could not risk trapping and bringing them back to the mainland because in those 150 years, they may have developed special strains of pig disease that could, of course, get loose into our pork market in America. So the decision was made to kill them, the pigs. Uh, the pigs had to be removed for two reasons. One, they were eating all the acorns, tearing everything up, which gave space for invasive plants to grow. Two, they were what attracted the Goldens in the first place because the Goldens wanted to eat these tasty little piglets. Mm. So, no problem, except that once the sheep had been removed, the invasive fennel, anise, uh, grew up into thickets the size of this room and 20 feet high, and the pigs hid in the thickets. What are the eagles going to eat? Now we come to the crux of it. The poster animal for all of this restoration is the Channel Islands fox. It's a dwarf species because of the principles of island biogeography bio where species will grow bigger, like our island blue jay, which is one-third bigger and a lot bluer than the one on the coast, um, or they will uh, become dwarf species, depending on the environment and the resources. So this fox has been there for 16,000 years, and it is the size of a house cat, four to six pounds. And now the goldens were preying on it. And these things would be extinct at this moment if one of the biologists didn't figure out what was going on. And um, Lotus Vermeer, who's head of the Nature Conservancy there, showed me on her laptop a picture of a golden eagle chick. We love this animal. It's huge. It's beautiful. And sitting there, and around its base of its nest are the remains of 20 of the island foxes, one of which had a radio collar, which is how they discovered the problem. So the pigs had to be eliminated. The pigs had to be shot dead and just left there to rot 
The foxes had then been uh, rounded up, uh, captive bred, and all the goldens were captured, sent to the Sierras, and balds brought in from Alaska. All of this. Uh, the unforeseen consequences of the introduction or the removal of one species or another. It sounds preposterous, and yet these foxes would be gone as we speak. But once the pigs were eliminated and the goldens removed, the balds have reestablished. I was present for the uh, release of the first two ch uh, bald chicks uh, born on the island since 1946. And by the way, they're you know they're three feet tall with claws like your hands. Um, and so far, so good. But again, this does not address the question of Dave LaJoy, who went from protesting the Anacapa rat poisoning to the slaughter of these 5,500 pigs, innocent animals, shot dead, left to rot. One of the things that this book does very well is that you have lots of great uh, kind of startling images, and the image you just described of the of the graveyard of, of foxes around the eagle chick is one of them and you also uh, have some images from a, a PETA brochure in there a and I'd like you to talk about putting these kind of startling and kind of uh, distressing images in a and as a writer you I I'm guessing you're kind of gauging how the readers going to react to this and I'm wondering how far you're willing to, you know, repulse the reader? How much? How re How much are you going to repulse the reader, and then, but still keep them drawn in? Well, you know, again, I'm just an artist, and I'm just doing what I'm going to do, and I don't really know how it works. Uh, of course, to one of the first things you learn when you're making a work of art is how is it going to communicate to the audience. As far as worrying about whether I repulse the audience or attract them and whatever, I have no control over that. I'm just doing what I'm going to do and hope for the best. That said, though, I think that uh, a book like When the Killing's Done, and I think my other 21 books that preceded it, um, should be read every night by everybody throughout the entire world uh, in, uh, and that they should ignore their TVs and their Internet and everything else because the world would be a much better place. Uh, well, I agree, and that, <laughs> but that gets that gets to something that, that's very true about your books. And this book, I noticed that when I was reading this book as well, that these books are designed to be reading experiences. I, you read a lot of books, and you think, well, this would make a good movie, or you think this make make a good TV show. Mm. You don't have that kind of thoughts when I read your books. Every I once in a while, Rick, in my class in my creative writing classroom. Very slyly in the middle of a discussion when someone has mentioned a movie, for instance, which is fine and as, as a reference to what we're doing, I always point out that they might not be aware of it, but books did precede movies. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so in a sense, uh, to make a novel is to, for me to be creating a movie, uh, a visual thing, and for the reader too, in translating it in those unconscious moments of reading, you're casting the movie yourself, which is why sometimes very uh, powerful or well-received books or well-loved books don't really translate well to the screen because the audience has such an investment in the movie they made in their own heads of this thing. And an example is for this book, the book trailer, which was made by my daughter and her, her beau, Jameson Fry and, and Kerry Kabashi-Boyle, um, is exactly like a movie trailer with actors and with confrontations and so on. And it's beautifully done. I love it. In fact, it's great. But 
immediately some of the readers on my website are, are complaining that um, they didn't want to see a face attached to Dave LaJoy. They wanted to create their own image of him, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. It, it, it hurts in that degree. I don't know what the answer to that is. Um, I will say, though, that there are certain books that I love so much that I did not go to see the movie because I thought it would violate my feelings about the book. Well, that's, I mean, that's understandable. I mean, the kind of the way I think of it is that uh, there's a, the collaboration between the reader and the writer is that you give us the script and you're the director and we're kind of the cinematographers and the actors and we supply that after part. I like that metaphor very much. Yeah. And I think that's, you do a particularly superb job of supplying us with a script and direction that is, um, doesn't, that is uniquely literary. And that is the kind of engagement of a literary reading experience that is, that is not, does not want to be translated and may, in many senses just can't be Mm. to, to any kind of other medium. Well, again, I don't know. I love movies. You know, movies have been made of, of many of my stories and books and so on. Um, I just see it as a, a different version of what I've done. I liken it to a song. You write a song, you perform it in your own way, like like Bob Dylan, for instance. And then Jimi Hendrix comes along and makes his version of uh, All Along the Watchtower. And that's great, too. But it's just a different version mm. and a different vision. Um, I don't have any uh, interest in working in movies. I never have, never will, uh, because... This is what I'm supposed to do in life. I'm supposed to create this ongoing group of books and stories to see what it is. I, I write in order to see what comes next. Well, you know, one of the things that I, I really enjoy about this book is, and this is something that we don't see very often in literature these days, is the attention you pay to chapters. I love the way you create these chapters. Now, some of these, I, there, there's a note up here that some of this stuff was published before, and you can kind of published see that. before, but only in retrospect. The, mm-hmm. I finished the book totally; it's done. And then, you know, we select some parts to put out into magazines to interest people in in, in the final book. Oh, okay. No, 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 no. I mean, it's not nothing is published in any of my books ever. No excerpt is published until the book is completely done, delivered, and in production. Oh, really? Very, very yeah. interesting. Yeah. Well, I really like the attention you paid to the chapter, the chapter structures, and you, you know, some of them are named. Or we have the Latin names of of the of the critters on the mm-hmm. that yes. are involved in this, and some of them are you know the wrecks. <laughs> right, as we said earlier, it gives it an organizing principle to mm-hmm. me, and I'm always trying to do something different in each book. I don't want to repeat myself, and so I wanted to have a somewhat discontinuous narrative. There's a very exciting uh, story at the heart of this, and it's the major part of the book, and it's the the fight between Alma and Dave. Mm-hmm. But there are set pieces. It opens with this. Um, grueling, you know, 35-page account of a shipwreck and a woman surviving this shipwreck after she watches her husband and brother-in-law drown before her eyes and winds up on Anacapa uh, for two weeks before she's rescued. It turns out, you wonder what this is all about, but it turns out that this is Alma's grandmother. You have a, a to part two of the book, you have a second set piece, which is about a sheep ranch at Scorpion Bay on Santa Cruz Island. And it's similarly grueling. And you get well into this story before you realize that the child on the island is Annis Reed, who is one of the major characters of the book. Uh, she's a folk singer who happens to be Dave LaJoy's girlfriend and a, and a, and a vegan and uh, an animal rights activist herself. So all the material weaves together, but it not, might not be apparent at the moment. 
As far as chapters are concerned, yeah, they, they could be somewhat discreet, these mm-hmm. set pieces, but they are all adding up and uh, to, uh, to the final um, uh, metaphoric uh, uh, connections that, that the book is trying to make. Well, I love the way you kind of weave these different parts together. When you do this, is this just like, um, give us an idea of your process. Do you, you start at word one, there's no, you have no idea what you're going to write. You've, you've done a bunch of research and reading, and it's, this has been like kind of boiling in your head like a stew for yeah, many okay. years. Yes, absolutely. Not many years uh, during the process of, uh, of research. So a book like this typically would take maybe three months of just doing the research. And in the case of this Boy, that's book, fast. well, you know, it's my job. <laughs> uh, it's my job to see what comes next mm. and to write new books. And we'll talk about what I'm working on now, if you like, in a minute. But anyway, um, in a book like this, of course, I had to meet the biologists and go out to the island and, and see what it's all about. I wanted to. It's one of the reasons why I wrote the book to begin with. Or Drop City, set in Alaska. Yes, I had to go to Alaska for a month and, and, and look around and see things. But I don't know exactly why or what it will be. In this case, of course, it was somewhat easier because I had the real story of this fight for the restoration, which I've just explained to you, um, which happened. Here are the facts. Um, I need to give the background and discover it. And in the process of doing that, taking notes and so on and so on, it's just like writing a term paper. You have a big catalog full of notes. You don't know exactly what you will do uh, or how it will be, but you have an investment in this material and I just begin, I see something, I translate it into words, and I begin. And each day, as it builds, I have, I make discoveries about what it means, what the themes are, what the characters will do, um, how the plot will unravel. But it's only day to day. So that, in a book like this, which brings back a character at the end, uh, to end it in a kind of elegiac way, um, I didn't know that would happen until I got there. You know, I'm just moving and, and thinking on an unconscious level of what of how it comes together. And this is why I only want to write fiction, because it's a kind of miracle, uh, in my mind anyway, if it does come together. It's miraculous to read and really rewarding and rich. Now, uh, you're noted for writing historical novels, and one of the things I love about this novel is that it is in many senses historical. It has lots of historical portions, but you do a great job of turning the present into history and giving us a perception of this very day as uh, something seen from a distance. In the same way we look at this, the wreck that begins the book, we get the same feeling about the, the events that are taking place pretty much in our current day. Um, in the rest of the book, and I think that's a great perception that that that's one of the reasons we read to kind of get outside of ourselves and see, oh wow, I'm just in a moment in history. I'm not just wrapped up in doing my shopping. Yeah, yeah, how interesting. Um, well, mm-hmm. let's put it this way: here we are sitting in this room, the three of us, um, and we love literature, and we're very happy. On the other hand, we will all soon be dead. And there's no reason to do anything in life, you know? And I think the only way that I can address that and that despair of being alive is through art. I'm just searching. It's just an exploration. I don't know what else to say beyond that. It's, um, it's illuminating for me and, and for me to read other artists whom I admire. That's illuminating too. It's pretty much the only thing that I can hold on to that seems certain in this preposterous world in which we live. 
And again, this is why I'm constantly um, uh, playing over various scenarios about our animal origins, uh, as for most of the stories in Wild Child, for instance, or mm -hmm. Friend of the Earth, and all of this stuff. Um, it's endlessly fascinating to me. And it has to do with history, our history as a species, uh, uh, what we know of science. All of that uh, comes into play in what I'm writing about. Well, the, the uh, uh, plasticity and the fluidity of what is natural in this book is really uh, wonderful, and, and it's very thought-provoking, but it's also really entertaining. And mm. that's, the I think, the thing that um, you could muse on all uh, on this all you want and bore us silly, but you get us really involved. Now, one of the things you do that I think that gets us involved is the way you play with your prose. There's lots of your sentence, you know, many sentences to die for in here, many great character insights. But I noticed one thing that I, I really like is that sometimes when you really want to just like grab us by the collar is you shift to present tense. Yeah, well, a, a large part of this is in present tense because we, we have the present story to oppose to the past story in past tense. But one thing you said earlier that interested me, you said um, we're trying to discover what is natural. Well, of course, there are people, um, mainly Republicans, you know, um, with their bankers <laughs> and so on. Uh, and, the um, you know, we used to have uh, eight years of this evangelical administration who would say that um, anything is natural. You know, dumping DDT in the bay is natural. Anything we do is natural. Creating atom bombs is natural, of course. We are animals, we are part of nature, and we create it, so everything is natural. On the other hand, you could say that plastics are artificial, even though uh, an animal created them. And maybe they're not beneficial for the, uh, certainly not beneficial for the other creatures, but more to the point, they're not beneficial for our species and the um, conditions that we inherited when we began to evolve that allowed us to be here today. Um, Alma Boyd-Dakasui is constantly talking about how there are seven billion people on the planet. Mm-hmm. And she is, uh, this is a kind of dirge that she's singing throughout. This is the problem. Uh, we are all part of the problem. And there is no solution. So what is natural and what is not is, is a question of, uh, uh, of discernment in this book, you know. And uh, that's for you to, to decide. And I'm not trying to tell anybody to do anything. I'm just meditating. Well, that's what makes this book so, so engaging to the reader is that you allow us to experience um, the different perspectives of Alamosu Takasui and Dave LaJoy and uh, uh, Annis Reed and also. Mm -hmm. yeah, and, and I think that uh, by giving us these different perspectives, we can see, you know, the merits and the demerits of each. And actually what's great is that what Dave thinks of Alma kind of has this overlap. It's like those kind of uh, set diagrams you used to have when you were a kid where you had the two little circles. There's a, they have some overlaps, but they're also, those overlaps are areas of conflicts. And to get us on both sides of that equation, I think, is, 
is uh, really uh, crafty, and also <laughs> it, 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 it's enjoyable as a reader. Well, it thanks so much. Thank you so much. But this is, of course, what fiction writers have always done. Mm-hmm. They give you deep point of view of opposing characters so you can see how somebody else might feel, which is why I've never had any limitations on what I want to do. Uh, for instance, when I wrote The Tortilla Curtain, uh, the point of view is from two Anglo, a, a couple of two Anglos, a male and female, and from two Latinos, a male and female. Well, I'm not Latino, but so what? I mean, I'm a human being. I can uh, engage anybody. I can write from a female perspective. I, I do it more and more just to see if I can. Um, why not? Uh, why not express a common humanity rather than get polarized by these um, the nunnery of the politically correct, for instance? Um, you know, which really seeks to um, to quash debate because it's not proper or it's not correct, and you can't inhabit a, a Russian if you're not Russian. I say it's a lot of crap. I think the art is supposed to transcend all of that and invite people to be invested in somebody else's brain and see what it might be like from their point of view. To walk a mile in another man's shoes. Yes. Whose shoes are you walking in now? Well, let's put them up for the camera here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm walking in my new pair of Converse All-Stars, which I've been wearing, red ones, since 1995, when I was doing interviews for the Tortilla Curtain at a hotel in Hollywood, one after another, and a journalist came in with a shoebox under his arm and set it down on the table and said, I think you might need these, and he was absolutely right. So I'm walking in my own shoes. <laughs> Uh, but I think that's a leading question as to what am I working on at this juncture. Mm-hmm. I've never done any sequels. Um, and this is the book I'm working on now is not a sequel. It uh, also, though, is set on the Channel Islands. And it's a book called San Miguel. San Miguel is the farthest island out. And when doing research for When the Killing's Done, I discovered two historical stories set on San Miguel Island that had these amazing correspondences. And so I'm writing... For the first time in my life, a straightforward historical novel, sans irony or humor, all from a female perspective of people who had lived on this island and tried to make a go of sheep ranching on the island. And it's quite fascinating to me. In fact, the first part of the book is set in 1888, and a couple from San Francisco bought into this island, ownership, for $10,000. He was a divorced and she was a widower, she had the $10,000. And he convinced her to go down there and do this for profit and so on. And um, um, she, unfortunately, had tuberculosis. And he also convinced her that the air would be good for her. But of course, yeah, the air is good for her, but it's freezing cold there all the time, and it's blowing 10,000-mile-per-hour wind, you know? And so she kept a diary. This is an actual, actual historical diary that I've come across. And um, she was there for five months and wrote about went on what went on day to day. And so I've taken that and dramatized it. The second section, which I will complete if I live long enough, that is if the book tour ever ends, takes place in the period 1930 to 1942 during the Depression when another family tried to do the same thing there. And so I'm just paralleling the two stories. There's one character who goes between the two, but basically I'm just letting you make up your own determination of what this is about by placing the two stories in their own context. Now, uh, that's not unlike what you've done here with these two characters. You let us make up our mind that all, 
So I'd like you to talk about that. That seems to be something that uh, you're fond of. Um, well, much? yes, yes, Rick. But this is not an. Uh, this book that is, is sitting in your lap here. This mm -hmm. is dealing with an issue, as the tortilla curtain does dealt with the legal immigration. This is dealing with um, our control over animals and uh, who has the right to um, eliminate one species in favor of another, etc. Um, the book I'm working on now doesn't have anything to do with that. It has to do simply with people being isolated, which of course I love to write about, making their own society, getting on an island away from the mainland, becoming. Uh, their own boss of this whole place um, and trying to make a living from nature. Mm. Well, you have an interest in nature. How much time do you spend hiking in nature and just experiencing just nature, sunset, uh, artificial bit of pencil and paper or computer keyboard that enables you to create these novels? Mm. Well, I'm a nature boy and I'm outside a lot. Um, when I'm done with work each day, I am outside. And that may be just in the, in the garden or in the woods, uh, you know, cutting up wood or whatever it is, or scrambling around or walking on the beach. But I spend a few months a year in the Sequoia National Forest. I like to begin and end books up there because it's incredibly boring and I work harder. But it's also incredibly beautiful because when I'm done with work, instead of running around hassling in normal life, I just walk out in the woods. And um, I love it uh, by myself, by the way. I love it because it takes you out of yourself in a way that uh, a good story might or a great music might or, uh, or drugs might. Um, it's like being a child again. Yes, I see that you know we've had drought and the, the, the pine beetles are ravaging this tree or that tree. And yes, I know the names of the, of the plants and I know their ecology and so on. But that goes completely out of my mind because as you know, when you're out in nature by yourself, you become a child again and your unconscious takes over and you don't see any of that. You don't care about that. You just look around the next corner and say, oh, geez, wow, look at that. Every day is different. Every moment is different. Uh, the creatures are different. It's all just very important to me and, of course, highly restorative of what little shreds of sanity I still have left. Well, we all look forward to the... Restoring the shreds of your sanity and your next novel, and I'm guessing that sometime between now and the time that I open the pages of that book, uh, that the, you will strike some rich veins of irony. <laughs> well, I hope to finish the new one sometime over the summer, um, and uh, I'm also looking uh, toward doing the second volume of the collected stories, and then... I am really itching to write from a male point of view a contemporary story full of the filth and misery and slime and blackest of black humor. That sounds like fun to me. <laughs> <laughs> I've been speaking with D.C. Boyle. His new book is When the Killing's Done. Thank you for joining me, D.C. You're welcome, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.